tacos. What's that? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> Do tacos get any more kick butt than this? Oh, they're about to, all right. New at Taco Town. We take a crunchy all-beef taco, smother it in nacho cheese, lettuce, tomato, and our special southwestern sauce. Then we wrap it in a soft flour tortilla with a layer of refried beans in between. Sweet. Then we wrap that in a savory corn tortilla with a middle layer of Monterey Jack cheese. Awesome. And it gets even awesomer when we take a deep-fried gordita shell, smear on a layer of our special guacamolito sauce, and wrap that around the outside. This is pretty big. It gets bigger because we bake it in a corn husk filled with pico de gallo, then wrap that in an authentic Parisian crepe filled with egg, gruyere, merguez sausage, and portobello mushrooms. Can I eat it now? Sure. But not before we take the whole thing and wrap that in a Chicago-style deep-dish meat lover's pizza. Pizza? Now that's what I call a taco. Well, it's not a taco town taco until we roll it up in a blueberry pancake, dip it in batter, and deep-fry it until it's golden brown. Then we serve it all in a commemorative tote bag filled with spicy vegetarian chili. It's 15 great tastes all rolled into one. Taco Town! The new Pizza Crepe Taco Pancake Chili Bag. Only at Taco Town. Taco Town! Yes, indeed. Taco Town. Pizza? Now that's what I call a taco. Actually, that does have relevance to what we're talking about today. But a couple introductory remarks. Note, I have brought my own water bottle. And what Kurt did not uh, tell you about Planet of the Apes is he actually made a bold prediction from the stage. We were at the Grady Cole Center at that time. And he said that uh, he was going to go on record and say that Planet of the Apes would, would win the Academy Award for Best Makeup. And I thought he had a strong point, but I don't even know if it was nominated. I mean, someone can, uh, can challenge me on that one. But yes, good movies uh, to choose from this, this year. So uh, we are actually almost to the movie series. We're in week five of six of our current series. And we're in a series on really what it means to be a missional church. Ever since Vision Day, we've had this kind of these three pegs that we've put out there. We've said the, for a warehouse to be a missional church, we want to be about three key things. Engaging the culture, serving our city and neighbors, and pursuing normal people, pursuing those people who aren't yet followers of Jesus. And we've talked, to, uh, as Kurt said, the first three weeks of this series, and you can go to warehouse242.org and, and listen to the previous talks and look at the talk notes from those first three weeks, which were really the why do we do these things. Last week, Kurt looked at the how do we pursue normal people, and today we look at how we serve our city and neighbors. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on the why we serve our city and neighbors, because Alan Love did a really good job of that a couple weeks ago, and I encourage you to listen to his talk online. But we're going to do, we're going to look at the how by looking at a very, very familiar passage that I would imagine is familiar to every one of you, even if you've never opened up the pages of the Bible, because it's one of the, it's perhaps Jesus' most famous story that he ever told. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. And the Good Samaritan, the idea of being a Good Samaritan, you know, this is part of our popular vernacular now. We use this all the time. There are even Good Samaritan laws in place in some parts of the, of the country. If you've seen the last episode of Seinfeld, you know all about how that can play itself out. So we're going to look at this idea of the Good Samaritan, and we're going to look at the text. We're going to make some observations and then have some what I hope will be some broad-based applications as to how, and also some pretty particular applications as well. Before we look into the text itself, though, I want to just give you a little bit of a background. 
as to this idea of who is a Samaritan and why does that matter. We need to have a little bit of a larger context as to the Samaritan in the Good Samaritan because when Jesus told this story to the direct audience, the immediate audience that heard this story, it was a very, very controversial story. Because the Samaritans, back in the time of Jesus, uh, as Edith Schaefer reminds us, Christianity is Jewish. Jesus himself was Jewish. And he was speaking oftentimes to a very distinct Jewish audience. But the Jews themselves did not like Samaritans. There was a deep enmity and division between Samaritans and Jews, and it went way back in history. So if you were to pick up your Bible and you were to go to the Old Testament of the Bible, and you'd go back to the books, for instance, of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, kind of in the, the first quarter of your Bible, you will read about the fact that way back in the history of Israel, Israel used to be a united kingdom. And at their absolute pinnacle, it was the pinnacle during the reign of King David and his son, King Solomon. Absolute cultural flourishing for the nation of Israel, glory, splendor, wealth, everything was established. It was the culmination of years of longing and so forth. But then after King Solomon left the throne and his sons inherited the throne, that's when things began to disintegrate, and they disintegrated rather quickly. So much so that the kingdom which once was united was divided into two. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Now hang with me because this has relevance. The northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. The northern kingdom was was the city of concentrated power and the capital was Samaria. Now, in 722 B.C., the Assyrians, the Assyrian Empire, invaded the northern kingdom of Israel and sacked the capital city and, in fact, carried out a number of Jews into exile into Assyria. Assyria is basically, it was concentrated in what is present-day Iraq. And as was the custom of the day, they carried out exiles. People who were from the land of, of Israel, they carried them to the Assyrian Empire. They left some behind. They left a remnant behind. But what they also did, and which was very common historically at the time, was they brought settlers. They brought transplants, people from the Assyrian Empire, people who were not Jewish, and they brought them to settle the land of, of Israel. And so over time what happened is you you did have Jews who remained Jews and you did have Assyrians who remained Assyrians, but then you also had kind of this uh, pollination of sometimes you had intermarrying between these transplants and the Jewish Jewish people who lived in Samaria. The red-blooded Jews looked at those Samaritans, those half-breeds they called them, with great disdain. And in fact, the Samaritans would establish their own cultural centers, their own places of worship, very distinct from the Jews. And so throughout this sweeping panel of history, up until the time that Jesus is is speaking, and even today, Samaritans and Jews do not get along and play well with each other. Uh, Fierce enemies. So with that background, let's look at the text itself, and it'll be on the PowerPoint. And as we walk through the text, I'll make some comments uh, along the way that I think will help us as we look at the how of, why we, of, of how to serve our city and neighbors. This passage, in many ways, preaches itself, but I will make some, some supportive comments. So here we go. So on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We could have a whole sermon just on that one line, but we're going to keep going for the time being. What is written in the law? This is the law of Moses, way back in the Old Testament of your Bible, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, the man answered, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Now quickly to pause there. That's a true answer. Jesus himself was asked the same question. What's the greatest commandment? 
And, the, and for any red-blooded Jew, this was the answer to that question. This goes back in your Bible to Deuteronomy 6.4. This is the absolute uh, linchpin of Jewish ethics and morality right here. The Shema, it's called, Deuteronomy 6.4, to love God and love your neighbors. That's kind of how we truncate it. And Jesus said, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the man wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase called The Message, said, uh, the man was looking for a loophole, so he asked, who's my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, well, here's a story. And this is a parable, the standard way that Jesus told stories. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Let's pause there just for a second. The, uh, this particular road, called the Jericho Road, the road that leads from Jerusalem to Jericho, was a very common road. Jesus himself would have traveled this road many times. But, and it's literally the case that you would go down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem sits about 2,500 feet above sea level. Jericho is about 800 feet below the Mediterranean Sea, so a steep decline. It's about 17 miles in length. But here's the deal. For us, if you decided today to leave Warehouse 242 and to check out one of our sister churches, Lake Forest Community Church, off exit 23, uh, Gilead Road, it's about 17 miles to get from here to there. And for us, it's a pretty much a straight shot, right? We go right, up to, we go right up 77, we're basically there in 20 minutes. Different situation there, though. Same length, 17 miles, but huge uh, topographical uh, difference. And because of the very nature of these rocks and these hills and the winding path as you go down, it was a hot spot for criminal activity, lots of ambush points, and it, some commentators called this Jericho Road the Bloody Way. It was a treacherous path. Kind of in our context, it's kind of the part of town that you don't want to be in after dark. This was the Jericho Road. So the man is left for half dead. So now, a priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. Now let's pr press pause there. We may not have a context for priests and Levites, but the audience of, Je of Jesus' time would have known this the significance of this. Priests and Levites were full-time religious people. The priests were the very descendants of Aaron. Now, this goes way back in the Bible as well. At when Moses took the people of Israel out of captivity in Egypt, his brother, his right-hand man, was Aaron. Aaron was the first of the priests. And so this priest would have been a direct descendant from, from Aaron. Very distinguished position. Worked full-time in service at the temple. The Levites were the assistants of the priest. They, too, had a rich bloodline. Sometimes you hear referenced in, in the Bible the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, Jacob's offspring, his 12 sons, became the 12 tribes of Israel, and one of his sons was Levi. And Levi's descendants became the Levites, those who would assist at the priests at the temple. In fact, interestingly enough, in this parable, one of the Levites' chief responsibilities was to distribute alms to the poor. So what Jesus is saying here is the two people, full-time religious people, who were most responsible for tending to the man were also the ones who were most quick to walk to the other side of the road. They had good reasons for doing so, and we'll come back to that in just a sec. Now the story turns. But, uh, and there's that S word, but a Samaritan. And at this point, the gentleman asking the question and any of those in, in surroundings, there, they would have stiffened up, the hair on the back of their necks would have stood up, 
and they would have cringed a little bit because it would have been likely for them to anticipate, okay, two religious people didn't do the right thing, but then a good God-fearing Jew is going to come in and save the day, right? No. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, common way of addressing wounds at the time. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. Now let's press pause there. Keep in mind a couple things here. Every moment that this man spends tending to the man who's bloodied at the side of the road, every moment that passes, it gets darker and darker, and the risk increases. You want to make this 17-mile Jericho Road trip quickly. If he's going to put this man on his own donkey, the trip's going to go even more slowly. He's taking incredible risk, and he's even taking financial risk. He's got about two two days' wages on the table that he's saying um, that's going to pay for about a month and a half stay at this inn. He's risking something huge. So the next day, he does. He takes out two silver coins, two days' wages, and gives them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. So now the punchline. Jesus says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And you could almost envision this expert in the law with his proverbial tail between his legs, maybe sheepishly looking down and perhaps mumbling under his breath, the one who had mercy on him. He has to admit that the Samaritan's the hero in the story. But this isn't just about being a Samaritan. This is about extending mercy. And so Jesus says, and remember, the context for this whole passage is, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus tells him and says, go and do likewise. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, you could perhaps draw lots of different observational comments from that text. It's incredibly dense, incredibly layered, and incredibly rich. I'm going to bring out three particular comments, do some compare and contrast, and then do some application. You can do more on your own time or in your small groups, but here, this will get us started. First of all, it's interesting, and let me, let me put all of this actually under the umbrella of a big idea of this text that says that missional service is simple. Missional service is simple. And here's what I mean by that. Simple and the opposite being complex. When, you, when we live a life of simplicity, we make time for the things that matter most. And so missional service becomes simple. And I believe under that umbrella of simplicity, which this good Samaritan had, he did three things as a result of the fact that he created space in his life for the things that mattered most. First of all, he paid attention. He paid attention to what was going on. The, uh, the priest and the Levites paid kind of attention, but it was more expedient for them to go to the other side of the road. He paid attention to what was going on. And let me give some questions, uh, reflective questions for us. Are we paying attention to what's going on around us in regards to those who are most vulnerable? Some of you may or may not know that Warehouse 242, where we sit here at 2307 Wilkinson Boulevard, actually sits very close to what we would consider three Jericho roads. Wilkinson Boulevard heads out this way toward the airport. West Moorhead Street heads that way toward past WBT, toward Freedom Drive. And Freedom Drive heads toward Interstate 85. The neighborhoods that are 
in between those roads, those Jericho roads, places that you might not want to get caught after dark. Camp Green, Westerly Hills, Ashley Park, these are the neighborhoods that warehouses said, we are going to invest a disproportionate amount of our time and energy in serving our neighbors. We want those neighborhoods to rejoice that we're here. And the question is, are you and I making time to pay attention to the needs of what's going on in the neighborhood? Some of you may be aware that three of the lowest performing schools in Charlotte, North Carolina, and even in the state of North Carolina, are located less than five minutes from this very podium. Do you know about that? Are you paying attention? See, the the challenge with Taco Town is that a lot of us live lives that in many ways resemble that crazy taco. Our lives, for so many of us, we are so full of stuff that our lives become untenable and unsustainable. You notice at the very end when the taco, and by the way, I love the scene where the taco has been taken out of the deep fryer and that one guy's trying to eat it and he's like, his fingers are getting singed. At the very end, the taco is dumped on the table and the table kind of buckles. I think that's kind of a, I think that's kind of a metaphor for many of our lives that we have so much stuff going on in our lives that our lives are literally, that our legs are kind of buckling under the weight of all the things that we've allowed it to be added to our lives. And so it's difficult for many of us to pay attention simply because we are living unsustainable, untenable lives. The Good Samaritan also was willing to risk something. As opposed to the Levite and the priest, he risked not only his time, his safety, his energy, but he risked financially as well. Now, interestingly, we've got to give the priest and the Levite a little slack because it's quite possible that they did a cost-benefit analysis when they saw the situation and went to the other side of the road. They weren't merely being smug because according to the Mosaic Law, according to the law of the Old Testament, if you came into contact with a dead body, if you touched a dead body, you were ceremonially unclean for seven days. That means that you could not go to the temple You could not have social interaction with anyone for a period of seven days. Now, they had very good hygienic and medicinal reasons for doing that. But it was kind of a quarantine, an isolation. You had to purify yourself over seven days, and then you could go back and have social interaction and go back to the temple. So is it not possible that the priest and the Levite looked at the reality of this potentially dead body or this badly damaged body and said, I'm weighing the costs, I'm weighing the risks, and... They do not weigh the benefits. And they walked to the other side of the road and went down. Not so for the Good Samaritan. So what about us? What are we willing to risk? What in our lives, if we make time for those things that are most important, what are we willing to risk? And probably if you're like me, and many of you are, the things that you are less likely to risk are your comfort and your convenience to serve that are most vulnerable, those who are most vulnerable. When we look at our calendar, when we look at our money, when we look at our own comfort and convenience, how much are we willing to risk to do the things that matter most in the world, to serve our city and neighbors, and to serve that are those who are most at risk? And finally, the Good Samaritan, and he did more, but for this talk at least, he acted on what he knew. He acted on what he knew, and he engaged. The others acted adversely and walked away, but he acted on what he knew and said, in light of the fact I'm willing to take the risk, this guy is in trouble, I need to act. 
which is a stark contrast to how many of us find ourselves navigating through life because it is so easy, isn't it, to read the newspaper and to listen to the radio and to watch television and to hear the talking heads yammering back and forth on the left and to the right telling us all about the problems, telling us all about the solutions, and if the other side would only shut up, we could actually make some progress. Back and forth we go. How easy it is to stay in that realm of just yammering back and forth instead of actually rolling up our sleeves and acting on what we know and getting involved. Friends, we live at a perilous time in history where the divide between rich and poor is only getting wider. You may not know that, but as we go about our Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn lives, the digital divide is only accentuating the divide between the wealthy and the poor, the haves and the have-nots. It is only getting more intense. What are we willing to risk? What are we willing to learn and what are we willing to act on? See, my great fear is even though we are the church, those in our present context most called to respond to the needs of our city, we are, in a sense, the priests and the Levites today. My fear is that we will be so busy and our lives so complicated that we will not create the time and space to serve those who most need it. There's that haunting line from the song, Stab City by Tall's Lions. In some strange way, it's like you're never there. You just float by, crawling in the air. What a haunting indictment if we're not careful of how we can just navigate through lives, complex, taco town, bloated lives. Our challenge is to reorder our private worlds through this discipline of simplicity to create time and space for the things that matter most. How do you do that? How do you do that? Well, let me give you a couple ways of how not to do that, how not to serve our city and our neighbors. One is not to, um, you know, not to think that it's all about you. We have a, a, an imperative to check our motives. Because service of any kind, service at this church, service in the community can very easily devolve into it's all about us. Get my volunteer hours, feel good about myself. I did something good today. And those at most risk and those most vulnerable, if we're not careful, can become just objects, people that we used, we used to make us feel good. We need, to, we need to watch our motives. We also need to be aware of the fact that um, we need to remember who God is. Don't try to serve expecting that God will love you more. You don't need to earn God's love. You've already got it. You don't need to earn God's love. You've already got it. And so the best service, how do we do that, comes when we understand the gospel, and we allow ourselves to be melted by the gospel and what the gospel really is. Because the story of the gospel, the story of Jesus and you and I, is all over this parable of the Good Samaritan. You see, the story of the Bible is that you and I were the ones left for dead along the side of the road. We were born in sin, and because of our own selfishness and sinful behavior, we pursue our own self-destructive paths, and our own trajectory is to always and inevitably wind up half-dead along the side of the road. Yet, according to the marvelous 
testimony of the Bible. In Philippians chapter 2, we read that at infinite cost to himself, Jesus sees where we are, bloodied and bruised along the side of the road, and at infinite cost to himself, in the miracle of the incarnation, puts on human skin and says, you and I are worth it, and I'm going to come down and put on human flesh and live the life that you and I could not live, die the death that we deserve to die because of our sinfulness and our rebellion against God, pay the debt that we could not owe, or that we could not pay back, pay the debt that he did not owe on our behalf so that we could live freely. And this is what we celebrate every time that we, we celebrate communion because Jesus paid for us, not with two silver coins at the end, but he paid for our redemption by his very act of being broken and bloodied on our behalf. And at communion, we celebrate this through the bread and the wine, symbols of the very cost that it took for Jesus to pay for our own recovery and for our own health. That's the gospel. It's all over this particular passage. And when you and I become melted by the fact that Jesus did that much, the Bible says, while you and I were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. Not when you and I were looking so great, when we had our resumes all together, when our CV looked that good, when we were at our absolute best, Jesus died for us. No. While we were sinners, while we were stuck in the ditch, Jesus died for us. And it gave him great pleasure to do so. The Bible says that by his wounds, we are healed. And when you and I are allow that, that truth to melt our hearts, then and only then can we respond missionally to actually serve our city and neighbors. Not out of guilt, not out of shame, not out of duty, but out of a response to love God. And a response to say, thank you, Jesus, because you love me, I'll love the neighbors, the people I come into contact with. Now, let me give you a couple. For some of you, that's a good starting point. And some of you need some real practicals beyond that. But let that be the anchor that kind of tethers everything together here. Some very practical ways that you and I can pay attention, be ready to risk, and act on what we know. Uh, First of all, to pay attention. Get into conversations with folks who may know more than you do about the needs of those most vulnerable here in the city and here and and around the world. Pay attention to to read the right books and to watch the right TED Talks and the right videos and to engage in the right dialogue so that you and I uh, can be paying attention to what's going on. Some of you may not know about the very real risks and the needs in in our own backyard here at Warehouse. Now's an opportunity to find out about that. We've got great resources back at the Serve Engage kiosk. Email service at warehouse242.org to sign up for the Camp Green newsletter and learn and read about what's going on so you can be paying attention. Secondly, be ready to risk something. And the best way that you can be ready to risk your time and your money and your energy is really to, to have a disciplined approach to saying, okay, let me stop and let me prioritize in my life the things that are most important. And with that, I have a very practical how-to, and it's something that has a little bit of an inflammatory title, but I'm going to recommend it to you because I think it has, inf- I think it has applicability to everyone in this room, regardless of where you are. You may be married, you may be single, you may be uh, divorced, you may be thinking about being married, you may have children, you may not have children. It doesn't matter where you are in that continuum. I think this book has relevance for everyone. If you've ever read a book by Patrick Lencioni, you know his style. This, partic- this is one of his newest books called The Three Big Questions for a Frantic Family. And don't let the title uh, disturb you if, if you don't have a family. Patrick Lencioni's passion is, is screenwriting. And so the first two-thirds of every one of his books is, is a fable that he tells. 
That's his passion. But what he does for a living is he's a consultant. And he helps people and individuals with the nuts and bolts of their life. So if you didn't want to read the first two-thirds of the book, you could turn to the very last third, which is, very, which is practically the model of how do you go and create capacity, maybe starting with the next two to six months, how do you very practically go and determine what are the things that are most important in your life, what are the values that you have in your life, and how do you go about doing the things that are most important? He calls this having a rallying cry. Having a rallying cry that you can use to guide you very practically. Some of you actually need to take the time and maybe take 20 minutes to a half hour and read through his model and say, okay, how do I create space for the things that are most important in my life? So that you can be ready to risk your calendar, your comfort, your finances to serve those most in need. And lastly, all of us have an opportunity to act on what we know. Because our, our, our position at Warehouse is we're going to be making an opportunity, continuing opportunities for you to invest. You heard about Camp Warehouse. Camp Warehouse is a great opportunity for you to invest practically, to act on what you know. Uh, a number of years ago, Lynn Bloker, who no longer is here, she's in Chapel Hill, what she did, she worked at Wachovia, and she had accumulated all these volunteer hours, as Kurt was saying, all these volunteer hours that, that Wachovia said, go, serve the community. We'll give you time off to do that. She cashed in all those chips to serve at Camp Warehouse the entire week. Some of you can do that because you've got all that volunteer credit hours uh, uh, served or in your account from your time at Duke or Wachovia or Bank of America, Wells Fargo, wherever. Some of you may need to, to act practically that way. Camp Warehouse is coming up July 13th through the 17th. Get to know some amazing at-risk kids and, and serve them expecting nothing in return and watch and see what God does in your life. Family Promise is also coming up in August, very quickly, August 2nd through 9th. And many of you heard, about, heard us talk about Camp Warehouse or about Family Promise a couple weeks ago. You saw the video of the Breakfields and their commitment to, um, to Family Promise. And some of you are saying, yeah, boy, I want to be involved in serving homeless families here at Warehouse. Serve them for a whole week here. I'd, I'll do that. Some of you need to email service at warehouse242.org and say, how can I be involved in that initiative? And some of you need to just look at um, developing a regular pattern of service even here at, at Warehouse. Serving with kids, serving in the parking lot, and developing the spiritual discipline, the habit of serving practically. And one more big picture thing. I know it's a difficult economy, and I know a lot of you are really struggling. But there are others of you who are doing all right. You're, you're navigating through this financial time. And some of you have the financial freedom and flexibility in your life where you can be looking at some strategic financial investments. And I'll, let me hit you with one. A couple weeks ago, Deirdre and John Martin and I were in, it was talking in the front yard of their house. They've got a property over here in Camp Green. And we were looking from their driveway. We were looking around their neighborhood. And we saw a house for sale, house for sale, house for sale, boarded up house. If you've read Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point, you know that boarded-up homes and vacant homes do not create stability and safety within a neighborhood. It's just a fact. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that one out. If you wanted to make a missional financial investment in, in Camp Green, you could buy a property in Camp Green, a house that's for sale, that's boarded up. You could buy that home very inexpensively. What would it look like if you fixed up that home and then got in touch with one of our strategic partners here at Warehouse, like the WISH Foundation or like the WISH Program? which creates permanent housing for homeless families. Maybe you fix up that house, invest some sweat equity in that house, and then say to the WISH, found, to the wish program, all right, it's ready. It's ready to be invested uh, with, with lives of, of homeless families who need a permanent place to live. Stabilizing a neighborhood and providing permanent housing for some of the 3,000-plus homeless children in, in Charlotte-Mecklenburg. 
Some of you need to be wrestling through stuff like that and acting on what you know. Keep in mind, though, that all flows. What great opportunities that come when we, when we respond to the extravagant love of Jesus. So in conclusion, what must you and I do to, to inherit eternal life? What must you and I do to inherit eternal life? To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. Who is our neighbor? Kurt said it best. Anyone that we have proximity to. And let us simplify our lives, because service is simple. Let us simplify our lives by creating space for the things that matter most so that we can respond to the very real needs and the things that are most important in the world and in our neighborhood. Please pray with me. Father, Son, and Spirit, we acknowledge that uh, so many of us in this room want to do more, and uh, sometimes we're caught with just the taco town reality of our lives. We live unsustainable, bloated lives, and uh, some of us are saying, gosh, I want to do more, but how? Help us to remember what you've done on our behalf. Jesus, thank you for your amazing gift of love and forgiveness and reconciliation rooted in who you are. Thank you for rescuing us where we, when we were in the ditch. Thank you for paying for, the, for, the, uh, for our restoration and reconciliation by your very life. And help us out of that to respond and to prioritize our life, to create space in our life for the things that matter most. We want to serve our city. We want to serve our neighbors so that at the end of the day, they may not understand us, but the city says, my goodness, I'm glad that Warehouse 242 is here. I can't imagine this city without them. That's the kind of community we want to be. And so we commit um, our lives to you in Jesus' name. Amen.